uh, open your Bibles or pull up your apps to Mark chapter 11. Um, and for those of you who, whose kids just went and got one of these, you'll see that Mark is kind of divided into three different sections. Um, and this third section is called Act 3, Jerusalem, and it starts in chapter 11. And so we're entering into some familiar stories, whether you've walked with Jesus for a very long time or whether you're brand new to Jesus, Mark chapter 11 starts into some stories that are somewhat common to our culture. Um, and as you're turning to Mark 11, uh, I want to ask if any of you remember, and some of you are going to be way too young to remember, but for those of us who grew up in, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, do you remember like the 3D paintings that, that used to be super popular? They're like the pictures of like aspen trees with dots on them, but if you like blurred your eyes just right, they were horses. Um, and you're like, wow, that, that's, not, that's not what it seemed. That's unexpected. Anybody remember these paintings? They were super cool unless they weren't, but they were super cool um, during, during a specific season. Um, things weren't what they seemed as you looked at the paintings. That same principle is why, and I've shared this before, I love detective novels. I love spy movies. It's the suspense. It's the twist at the end, the big reveal. It's the same kind of thing. Wow, that's, that's not what I thought it was going to be. Things are not what they seemed. And in these chapters, we're going to be in chapter 11 and dip into chapter 12 a little bit today of Mark's gospel. There are lots of things that we're going to see that are not what they seem. Here, here's some of the stories we're going to look at. And again, you, you probably know these. Uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem and is celebrated as a king. But Jesus is not the king that they expected. He's not, he's not what he's seen. He's not the kind of king they wanted. Jesus is going to go into a temple in Jerusalem, the most holy site for, for the religion of the day. But the temple is not what it seems. It's supposed to be this place of worship, but, but it's not. And then Jesus is going to meet some religious leaders, and the leaders aren't what they seem. They're supposed to be folks who point people to the Messiah, but they missed the Messiah's very arrival. And so there's a lot that we're going to see that's not what they seem. Um, but back to the 3D paintings, if you remember those, uh, maybe you're like me. I hated them. I hated those things. You know why? I was never good at them. I don't know if my eyes don't blur right or if my brain's too small to figure out how to see the magical horses that are apparently in and amongst the aspen trees. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't see it. And so if, if I found myself in these chapters of Mark, I guess I'd be most like the religious leaders. Um, seeing... Jesus, but missing the fact that he was the, the Messiah. And, and, and I want to invite us to ask this question, just, just kind of keep this question in the back of your mind today. Where are you in these chapters? As we read some portions of Mark 11 and 12, are, are you like the religious leaders? Do, do you see Jesus claim to follow him, but do you miss his authority? Do you miss who he really is? Or are, are you like the temple? Are, are you, do you look very religious, and yet other things you know internally are, are things that you care more about? You're overtaken by cares and other priorities. Or are you like the folks on the road who, who welcome Jesus into Jerusalem? D do you want Jesus to be a certain kind of king, and when and he doesn't turn out to be that kind of king, are you shouting crucify him a few days later? And maybe you don't find yourself in any of those, praise God. Or maybe you find yourselves a little bit of a mix of some of those. But, but keep that question in mind. Who, who do I resonate with in Mark 11 and 12? Because um, the big question we're asking today, the big question from these chapters is, what do we miss 
about Jesus's true kingship. If you're a note taker, that's the starting point for us. What do we miss about Jesus's true kingship? Because whether you're familiar with these stories or not, Jesus is surely not what we expect a king to seem to be. Okay, so let me pray for us and we'll dive in. So yeah, Father, we do, we celebrate you and we sing hallelujah and we say hosanna. Um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and and we say we follow you, but God, would you help us to see areas where where we do and don't worship you and celebrate you as the right king that you are? Would you meet us and teach us today in your son's holy name? Amen. All right, so we're going to dive in. Again, these are very familiar stories. The danger here is that our eyes might glaze over, and not in like the 3D painting way, not in a good way, uh, but they're so familiar, we might kind of miss the point. So, so adults and kids, I'm going to have you uh, interact on this as well. I'm going to read part of Mark chapter 11, and for adults and kids, I want you to notice what Jesus says about his kingship what he enacts about his kingship, and then people's expectations. So Mark 11, starting in verse 7, this is just after Jesus sent his disciples. They find a donkey. They say the Lord has need of it. And then in verse 7 of Mark 11, they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And so he went out to Bethany with the 12, Bethany's little suburb of Jerusalem. All right, so I put a couple things up there that you'll see in a minute, but don't go there yet. What are some things that you notice about what Jesus says um, about his kingship or about people's expectations on his kingship? And if you're new with us, we just believe that the Spirit of God's in all of us, and sometimes he helps each other notice things, and it's not just the person who's up here teaching, so feel free to interact or don't. But what do you notice, kids or adults, about Jesus' kingship or people's expectations? Anything? What kind of king is Jesus going to be? Yeah, Kate? A kind king. Yeah. Why do you think he's going to be a kind king? He's always just been kind. Absolutely. And we've seen that, honestly, throughout the Gospel of Mark, that he stops and engages folks who are often discarded and overlooked. Jesus is a kind king. It's really good. What else? Anybody notice anything else? What kind of king is Jesus, or what kind of king do people expect him to be? There's a kingdom coming. There's a kingdom coming. Yeah, so he's a, he's a coming king. He's one who's not arrived yet. But this anticipation is building for its kingship. Good. What else? They're treating him like royalty. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Jerusalem's in a desert. So tons of dust, not much shade. To, to take off one's cloak and lay it down means it's going to be really dirty. They didn't have closets like ours. They had like one or two cloaks. And so either 50 or 100% of their clothes are now covered in dust and then trampled by a by a donkey. 
And, and, and there's something really special about this person if they're willing to cut down some of the few shade branches and wave them in worship for the king. They're expecting royalty. Anything else? Yeah. In a way, it's a very humble... That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's a very humble entry. Um, if you've seen, and kids in the room, you've seen Aladdin when he enters the, 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 the city with all the however many thousands of monkeys. It's a lot of monkeys. Um, and, and the trumpets and the, the, the entourage and this kind of... That's, Jesus walks in with people, but not with pride. On a donkey. On a donkey. A borrowed donkey. Yeah, he doesn't even have his own donkey. <laughs> Great point. Yeah. So he's, he's entering Jerusalem with this entourage, but, but not a, a prideful big production. He's not entering on a domineering status of power on a Roman stallion, but rather on a young donkey, a borrowed donkey. Uh, there's a lot of kids' movies made about Jesus' donkeys. Um, a lot about the one that carried Mary at Jesus' birth, and some that are made about the one that carried Jesus into Jerusalem for his death, which is an interesting kind of bookend to Jesus's life for the record. But, but his entrance into Jerusalem points to his true posture and points to his, his beginnings. So to summarize some of what you said and add to him a little bit, what kind of king is Jesus? Here's a few things that'll be on the screen. First, Jesus is a humble, servant-hearted, normal, simple king. He's a humble, servant-hearted, normal, and simple king. There's, I know there's lots of people's takes on the recent Super Bowl ads about Jesus, but there's some truth in them that he really does get us. Like Jesus does understand fully what humans go through. He's not the kind of king who is high and mighty and removed from people. Jesus suffered. Jesus was, was tempted and rejected. Jesus felt pain. This has been true in his life until now. It's certainly going to be true in his last few days. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. Further, and it's easy to, to skip over this verse, but in verse 11 it says, he went into Jerusalem and went into the temple, and then it was late, so he went out to Bethany. Which shows us another way that Jesus was normal and fully human. Jesus needed to sleep. And there's something really refreshing about that to me. That, that again, we'd, the whole fully God, fully man thing that we believe is true of our Lord is really mysterious. But there's moments in a lot of the Gospels where we're reminded, oh, he really is a simple human. He was tired. It was late. He had a big day the next day. You feel that sometimes. So he went out and rested his head and he needed sleep. But why is Jesus going to Jerusalem in the first place? If we look back a few verses, we'd see why now? Why is he going? He's going for Passover. So Passover is this, this huge, huge festival. It's an annual festival. Lots of people would come from across Israel to Jerusalem during these days. And very similar to like the red carpet things you see at award shows now, there would be people outside the gates waiting for that like Aladdin-type royal entourage. Oh, who's this? Who's coming? Pause. Can I get an autograph? Can I get a picture? Would be how we would treat it today. And then here comes Jesus, 
The reason they're there is to offer sacrifices, to atone for their sin. That matters, the fact that Jesus is entering at Passover. Because what kind of king is Jesus? He's the full and final Passover lamb. And if you know much about the story of Passover, every year Israel would gather and they would sacrifice animals for the, for the last year's atonement. And they would celebrate by offering up a lamb. Jesus was that full and final Passover lamb. He's not a king who oppresses his people, but he's one who sacrificed and gave his life and died for his people. Does that make sense? Y'all, that's the kind of king that Jesus shows himself to be in these first verses of Mark 11. But before we move on, I want to ask us, is, is that the kind of king you want him to be? Because to, to, to say yes to that says you're willing to follow a humble, normal, sacrificial king who would die in a few days. So I want you to be honest, is, is that a king you're willing to follow? Or do you want a different king? Because as, as some of you pointed out, that the people at the entrance of Jerusalem, they wanted a different kind of king. Again, the, the coats on the ground, the, the cutting down of the shade, the, the shouting of Hosanna, which means God is going to save us. That, that is, as Michelle said, a royal welcome. And just a couple hundred years before Jesus entered Jerusalem, a man named Judas Maccabeus entered Jerusalem. And when he entered Jerusalem, he defeated the foreign powers and he rebuilt the temple. And he was welcomed similarly and praised similarly. And for many people, that's the kind of king they wanted Jesus to be. They wanted him to be a political king. They wanted him to be a domineering, overthrowing king. They wanted him to show a worldly sense of power. And people now are a lot like people then. Is it not true on some level, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but is it not true on some level that it'd be nice to have a king who's formed in our own image? Here's the kind of king I want you to be. Do this for me. Be that for me. And if that's your posture toward Jesus, then who's actually the king? or queen, who's actually the authority. If we're able to order him around and create a God in our own image, that's a very small God and a very, very incompetent king. Do you follow the point? Jesus is not the king that people wanted him to be. He's not a king. He's not what a king should seem to be. But but this is the only kind of king that Jesus is. This is the true kind of king, the good kind of king. Jesus is no other kind of king. Is that fair? So then the next morning after he's refreshed by his sleep, Jesus sees this fig tree as he's walking to Jerusalem, and the fig tree is not producing figs, and this will be up on the screen. In verse 14, Jesus sees it, and he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then by the next day, the next passage that's up there is they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, what was it? Withered away at its roots. And the disciples are amazed. Look at the power, look at the authority here. Even this tree 
bows to Jesus' will. And, and if you've read this, you'll see that Mark even calls out that, that it wasn't the season for figs. And so it can seem kind of petty that Jesus is just like, ah, zap, done kind of thing. And I want to submit that that's not actually what's going on. Because laced throughout the Old Testament, which Jesus and his disciples and, and everyone of the day would be very familiar with, our Old Testament, their Hebrew scriptures, the fig tree was used as a symbol of God's people. And so this fruitless fig tree was deserving of discipline and also because it symbolized a greater truth. It still symbolized God's people who were also not producing fruit. And this is the second thing today that is not what it seems. Because between these two verses, one commentator said that these two verses are like the bread of a sandwich and the meat and toppings between them is a story of Jesus going into the temple, and guess what he sees there? The same thing as the fig tree. You're not producing the kind of fruit. Your religious practices are not fruitful. So Jesus is going to judge the temple like the fig tree, because like the fig tree, God's people and the temple activity, they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not, they're not what they're supposed to be. The, the temple religion is not what it seems. So again, I'm going to read this part of, of Mark 11. And this time, and kids, help me out on this one too, adults as well. Uh, pay attention to Jesus' posture toward the injustice and blasphemy that he sees in the temple. This is Mark 11, starting in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. All right, what do you see? What is Jesus' response? What's his posture toward injustice and blasphemy in the temple? What does Jesus do? Kiddos and adults and everything between. What's Jesus do? What's his posture? He's angry. Let me ask you a question. Is it okay to be angry? All right. Does anyone in, in, in your like deep, dark mind go, yeah, but I was told I should never be angry at some point in my life and told like anger is bad? There's, there's a righteous kind of anger. But man, we, we don't understand that very often. We, we're, we're ashamed when we're angry sometimes. Jesus was rightfully angry. There's, there's good reasons, church, to be angry at things. What else do you notice? He trashes the place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jesus displays this great authority, right? He even, he even says, you've made my house, which is supposed to be a house. He's claiming the temple as his house. If you want to go to the next slide, there's a few things we can see from that. Um, there's this great line in Home Alone, right? This is my house. What is it? I have to defend it, right? 
And like Jesus is a true and better Kevin McAllister in this moment. Like he's, he's walking in and saying, you're ruining my house. You're desecrating my house. Or if you like older movies, it's like a mom and dad in every single 1980s movie who comes home to the teens having a party. And they're like, we got to clean this thing up. They start to kick people out of it. Jesus is going to restore the brokenness of the temple. Because the temple's supposed to be a house of prayer, of sacrifice, of self-giving, of worship. The, the court that Jesus is in is a space where God welcomes all people. You know that God welcomes all people still? It's just worth pausing on that. This is a court where, where people from all nations were welcome. But also, despite what you may have heard, Jesus wasn't just upset at the fact that money was being changed or animals were being sold. In fact, that had been part of the tradition for, for centuries. Um, Jerusalem was a, a very long hike, um, and so folks would come, and, and instead of bringing their animals from home in, in fear that they might perish along the way, th- they would pay for a sacrifice at the temple. And that, that was okay. That was part of the tradition at the time. There was, and we don't have a construct for this, there was even a certain kind of currency that was like a holy currency that was used in the temple. And so folks would come, similar to going into foreign countries, and they'd have to exchange their normal money for temple money. And so those weren't inherently bad things. In fact, it was necessary in some ways. But what Jesus is angry at is, and this is recorded in so many different Jewish traditions, there's a massive markup and a massive foreign exchange fee, if you want to use that language. And people used the construct of God and religion for personal gain. They were price gouging. And and, and what does Jesus do with his authority? He makes it right, even if it's disruptive. And, and again, there's a lot of injustice today, and a lot of the reasons that people shy away from it is because we don't want to disrupt too much. Jesus wants to make it right even if it disrupts the status quo. So he's the same, the same king as we saw in verses 1 through 11. He's humble, he's normal, he's sacrificial. He's a king who's fully human, but he's also a king who's fully what? Fully God. He's judging the sacrificial system. He's using his authority to say, this is my house. He's the one ultimate authority, the one true judge. And so those are just two more aspects of the kind of king that Jesus seems to be. But again, we have to ask, are you willing to follow that king? Because similar and dissimilar to the questions we asked earlier, would you rather follow in your mind, a calm Jesus, a Jesus who's just peaceful at all costs? Do you want a king who who will let you do whatever you want? A king who says anything goes. Do you want a king who, who you're able to say, oh, I like that part of your teaching. I like that part of your authority, but I do not want to give you kingship over this part of my life. Kids, your mom and dad ever correct you? They ever discipline you? My son's the only one saying yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trav, you want to tell about your favorite time? No. Um, yeah. Do you know why, kids? Do you know why your parents correct you and discipline you? Anybody know? 
because they love you, say all the parents. No, no, that's good. Kids don't realize it. So yeah, yeah, kids, your mom and dad, your parents, your, your, the, the, the grown-ups in your life correct you because they're wise, right? Mm, always wise. And they're authoritative and they love you too much. Kids, look up here for just one sec. Your parents love you too much to let you walk down a bad path. Parents, grown-ups in the room, it is loving to discipline your kids. Jesus loved God the Father, and Jesus loves us so much, so much, that he's not willing to let us stay on a bad path and mock God's holiness or let you live however you want or be your own authority. Everything on earth is created for God's purposes. Fruit trees were created to bear fruit. The temple was created for worship. You were created to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And if any of these things are not what they seem, then like a loving but better mom or dad or grown-up, Jesus will judge us by God's standard and with the very authority of God will discipline and correct and return us to a better way. That's what Jesus does in the temple. That's what Jesus models to his disciples. Replacing good fruit or bad fruit in religion with good fruit. King Jesus asks for your whole heart. Are you willing to give it to him? It leads us to our last scene for the day. And we've seen a lot of times throughout the Gospel of Mark that the role of the religious leaders in Jesus' time was to point people to God and to the Messiah. And to be fair to the religious leaders, because they got it wrong a lot in the Gospels, there are other folks who claim to be Messiahs. But we've also seen throughout Mark that the priests and the scribes had heard Jesus' words and they'd seen Jesus' works and they knew there's something different here. They were afraid, we're told over and over and over again. So you can read the end of Mark 11 on your own, but, but Jesus essentially turns the tables on these leaders when they ask about his authority. And then in Mark 12, which is the last passage we're going to read, he explains who he is. So last time, I'm going to read this. Kids, listen as I read. Adults, grown-ups, listen as I read. What does Jesus say about who he is and about who the priests and the scribes This is Mark chapter 12. He began to speak to them in parables, and his story went like this. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. And when the season had come, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they took the servant, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, the vineyard owner sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And the owner sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he still had one other, a beloved son. And finally, the vineyard owner sent the son to the tenants, saying, they will surely respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took the son and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, what will the owner of the vineyard do, Jesus asks? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And the next verse says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in, his, in our eyes. 
And then the religious leaders were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, which, pretty perceptive. (laughs) So they left him and they went away. All right. What do you notice? What does Jesus say about who he is, who the priests and scribes are? Who's the vineyard owner? God. Who are the tenants? The priests, the scribes. Who are the servants? Yeah. God has sent Old Testament prophets and kings and folks to call Israel back and in a not-so-subtle illusion. Who's the beloved son of the vineyard owner? Sent finally to show the tenants their error? It's Jesus. So the tenants uh, at the time were kind of like stewards. I'm thinking a lot of movies right now. So like Lord of the Rings, the steward of Gondor. The king is gone. The stewards are there just to, to to keep the kingdom going. But like that bad steward, if you've read the books or seen the movies, generations of religious leaders have not done right by God. God had sent prophets, and leaders either ignored the prophets or killed the prophets. And so God finally sends his beloved son. And what are the tenants going to do in just a couple of days after this? They're going to kill the beloved son of the vineyard owner. And they're going to incur God's judgment and discipline for it. And so I just want to tie off our conversation tonight and say this, that, that on the next slide, at, this, at the bottom, you'll see there's this question that, that God sent his son into your proverbial vineyard. God sent his son to seek you. What are you going to do with him? Are you going to treat him as the rightful heir and son and king and God that he is? Or in some ways, do we follow the pattern of the religious leaders and say, nah, I'm good. It doesn't matter, church, who you want, the kind of king you want Jesus to be, or the kind of king you think he should be. Jesus is who he says he is. Can I say that again? Jesus is who he says he is. And he's this incomprehensible mix in these chapters of humble and normal and sacrificial and loving and authoritative, and judge. Will you accept that, Jesus, and accept that that's the kind of king he is? Or does the surface of the 3D painting, your perspective of what you think he should be, does it cloud your view of what's truly, truly there? Because, y'all, Jesus is the one true king, even if he's not the kind of king that he seems he should be. And I want to close with this, saying that that, the fact that he's not the kind of king we want, that's the best news in all of history. He's a better king than the king that you would construct him to be in your mind. His ways are so much greater than our desires. His truth is so much better than your ways. His lordship in our lives is so much better than our attempt to get him to bow down to our lordship and become some version of a king that we want to create in our image rather than the other way around. Is that good news? If you believe in Jesus' kingship and believe that it's better than what you want, then our response is to go, okay, king, what do you want me to do? 
Like that's the response to a king. We are your subjects. We are at your disposal. It's worship. It's obedience. It's devotion. It's a changed life as an overflow of having a better king. And that is what we declare, and that's what we remember every time we take communion. And so if you're new with us, we, we do this most every week that we gather, and we take communion as, as, a, as a visible, multi-sensory reminder and declaration of the kind of king that Jesus is. And so I would invite you to take a piece of the cracker of the bread, and, and if you're a follower of Jesus, dip it in the juice or the wine. Because what we're declaring as we do this is, Jesus, you are king. You are authoritative, you are the right judge, you are sacrificial, and you are loving. So you take the bread, what we're remembering is Jesus' broken body, because he entered Jerusalem on a Sunday, but by that Friday, he was the rejected cornerstone. And that passage, by the way, is from the same psalm as the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in a poignant bit of irony. So you take and dip, remembering this is Jesus' body shed for you. And this is his blood shed for you. The, the bad tenants of God's vineyard killed the owner's son. And per other accounts, they did so with the affirmation of the crowds who welcomed him to Jerusalem. Jesus was despised and rejected. He was killed but the other declaration of communion is that Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus is the only king with authority even over death. Jesus is the only rightful judge who, who judged death and found the concept of death lacking. Jesus himself died as a sacrifice because of God's love and because of God's love for you. That's not the kind of thing we think a king should do. Jesus isn't what he seems. Instead, he's better. Amen? Father, thank you that you and you alone are the right and true king, and thank you that your kingship is better than anything we could see in this world and anything we could construct in our own mind. God, if there are places that you need to dethrone us, then please be gentle, but please dethrone us so you can take your rightful kingship back. God, would you turn our eyes to you as we sing these next songs, as we respond in readings and this kind of stuff, would this not be a, an activity that fills a Sunday evening, but would these be responses to you and songs of praise to you because we're, we're praising our King. We're glorifying our King. And would you let that overflow from this evening into the rest of our lives as well? We thank you for being a better King. Amen? Amen. Amen.